You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Alright, what's up, third service? Love this service. You guys are so dead. Come on now. Hey, if Ephesians 5, Genesis 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I know Trent already mentioned this, but I just kind of want to reiterate. Um, we're going to be doing a short-term marriage group that's going to start this Thursday. And so it's going to be five days to a new marriage. And so this is a great starting point into small group or entry point into a small group. And so if, if you're not in a small group and you want to dive into one, this is a great place to start because we're going to branch some groups out of this and um, hopefully create some small groups. And, and if you want to, you know, if you're in here and you want to take this conversation to a deeper level, again, great place to start. So foothillschurch.com slash marriage, and you can find all the information that you need with that. So Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. So we're starting a new series uh, this morning on the family called Happily Ever After. And at FC, I hope it comes as no surprise that we care a great deal about the family and a great deal, in, consequently, about marriage. And so when we talk about these things, I just kind of want to go ahead and get this off my chest right from the beginning. When we talk about these things, it could seem like we marginalize singles. Um, and so when it, can, it could come across like we're, we're marginalizing this group. And so singles, I, I want to challenge you really kind of from the beginning um, not to feel that way throughout this series. And so um, you too are a part of the bride of Christ, right? You too are part of the bride of Christ. Here's the reality. If the height of love is earthly marriage, right? If the height of love is earthly marriage, singles are left out, but the height of love is Christ in the church. Therefore, no one is left out of that. So let's pray. Let's have some fun with this and let's get right into it. Father, thank you so much for our church. I'm thankful to, to be able to preach your word. And I pray that as we talk about the theological foundation of marriage, as we go all the way back to the beginning, I pray that, that it provides a, a springboard to our conversation for the rest of the series. And so God, I pray that you would meet us now in your Holy Spirit as, as your word does work on our heart and in everything we do this morning. I hope it's for your glory and our good. And pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis 2. Genesis 2, let's begin at the very beginning of everything. So let me tell you how all this happened, if you don't know already. It all began with a song. Like God created everything. God created everything. The universe, the earth, right? Animals, and even man. Adam woke up one day because God scooped up some dirt and formed him placed him in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam went out full of testosterone and just started naming stuff, right? Like donkey, fish, camel, cactus, right? And so like Adam noticed rather quickly that God gave everything a form and a shape, and everything that God created and gave a form and a shape was good. So let me get this teaching moment right out of the way, right from the beginning. The ways in which we abuse a thing does not negate the value of that thing. All right, let me say that one more time. The ways in which we abuse something does not negate the value of that something. So women are good things. Men can abuse women. Does that mean women are bad things? No, God created women for a specific, a specific function, a specific design, and a specific purpose given by him alone, right? Marriage, also a good thing. Some of us have had bad experiences with marriage, 
That doesn't make marriage a bad thing, does it? Like it still has an end goal, a specific function, a created purpose given by God. Also, sex is a good thing. So when we're talking about marriage and the family, sex falls within this conversation, this conversational framework. Sex is a good thing. Some of us have had bad experiences with sex. Like sometimes we can view and elevate sex as godlike in our life. And so when we look at sex or we pursue sex, it becomes this godlike status in our life. And then sometimes other, others of us might have this posture, like if we've had bad experiences with sex as it being gross. So it can either be God or gross, but in the proper context, it's a gift, right? It's neither God nor gross, but a gift. And so in that proper context, we see that take place again, which is marriage. And so everything, here's what I want you to see this morning. Everything has an intended purpose. And when we lean into that purpose, when we lean into those purposes, we live as God designed us to live. So everything has an intended purpose. Marriage has an intended purpose. Manhood, womanhood, right? Being a husband, being a wife, sex, all these things. Anything that God created has an intended purpose. When we lean into those, we're living with joy and we're living with purpose because that's how God designed it. And so that's our, our theological framework right from the beginning. So God created man, Adam, in his image. Adam woke up, walking out, you know, woke up, went out into the garden. Again, full of testosterone, naming animals. Then God entered the equation again and says this in Genesis 2:18. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a, what? Come on now. Hey, helper, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more of the service. God will make him a helper fit for him. So then God creates the woman, right? God creates Eve. And so remember a minute ago, I said it all started with a song and I'm gonna kind of skip a few verses here in Genesis 2 um, and go to verse 23. And I wanna read this. It says, then the man said, I love this. This is possibly my like two favorite verses in all of scripture. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so Adam woke up, he looked right, pretty much right at the woman and he began to sing. And I'm telling you, in that moment, everything changed, right? Adam woke up because God knocked him out and, you know, took one of his ribs and created the woman. Adam woke up and it's almost like Adam was, was longing for some undefined fulfillment all along. This at last, right? It's not good that man should be alone. God said, Adam wakes up, man, this at last. When love came into the world, it started with Adam singing to Eve. And so it's interesting enough that in the Hebrew, like woman essentially means mine, right? It's like Adam woke up singing this at last, what? Woman, mine. And so this isn't an exact science, but I'm just gonna go ahead and share this with you. That's somewhere between sixth through ninth grade. Um, guys start 
go from like wanting to appear repulsed um, to girls, like repulsive to girls, to then wanting to appear impressive, right? And so like if you take a bunch of middle school boys and put them in a room, it smells like body odor, body odor, like cheap cologne and Axe body spray, right? And so somewhere along the line between sixth and ninth grade, the day of epiphany happens. I'm just gonna coin that term. The day of epiphany happens. And so like my daughter is three right now. And so she's in Little Street and like she's playing and, and you know, with, with both genders and doesn't realize the differences between, you know, boys and girls at this age. Um, and so like she's just there. They're all being relational. But, but somewhere like in, you know, kindergarten, the end of preschool, boys and girls start noticing the difference. Boys start hanging out with boys. Girls start hanging out with girls. Boys are hanging out over here, punching each other and climbing stuff. You know, like the girls are over here playing and being more relational. And so like in sixth grade, then it starts, right? Like it's still Repulse City over here. Somewhere along the line, day of epiphany, like we go from wanting to appear repulsive to wanting to appear impressive, right? And we, we, we you know, we start smelling, um, covering our smells with, with cheap cologne, Instead, we start taking showers and styling our hair and caring about what we know, you know, who notices us and, and how we appear and what we look like. And so again, day of epiphany happens. Like you can put a sixth grader in the same place in a school and that same girl or group of girls could walk by hundred times, nothing. Day of epiphany, you know, they walk by, it's like, ooh, you know, follow. And it's, it's almost pr- pretty much like, you know, exactly what Adam is, is doing here. He wakes up, bam, woman, mine. Day of epiphany, right? Sixth grader notices mine, 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 mine. How do we channel that, you know? And so when it comes to, when it comes to the, my point here, I want you to see that this is biblical. You know, God created guys and girls to be attracted to each other. Boys liking girls is how God designed it to be. And so I say all that kind of to say also that within our student ministry right now, we're going through a series called Blurred Lines. And uh, we've been kind of talking about this conversation on dating, sex, and marriage. So if you're a parent of a teenager in the room, I encourage you to listen to those. Um, all my sermons from that are online on our, our website. Uh, we have more articles and resources to kind of take this conversation further. But it's a reality in our kids' lives. Right, and it's a reality in your life as well. And so moving along, and then in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, we see God's plan for relationships, sex, and marriage. And so let me read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both, you know, you wanna say it, Come on now, naked, right? They were both naked and not ashamed. Man and wife, both naked, not ashamed. Not boyfriend, girlfriend, not ashamed. Not engaged couple, not ashamed, right? Man and wife in the right context, given by God, and they were not ashamed. So it's clear from this passage that they are physically naked, 
But it is also clear that the relationship between Adam and Eve was God's good design for us, for them, for me, for you. Nothing to fear in this relationship, nothing to hide, with everything to be glad about in God, in the covenant of marriage. And so here's, here's the reality of all this. God designed the man, he designed the woman, gave them man parts, woman parts, created marriage, right? Told them to have sex they, and they weren't ashamed because of that act. In fact, it was quite the opposite, right? They were singing, they were joyous, this at last, right? Naked, not ashamed. And they were full of love towards one another and they were living as it was intended to be. And Adam and Eve leaned into the purposes in which God created for them. And so a few years ago, when I was in college, I was sitting in a cafe um, on campus and I was sitting at a table a lot like this doing homework and um, it was kind of a, a packed room. In walks in Grace, okay? And so Grace is my wife if you, if you don't know her. Um, but at this point, you know, soon to be wife, she didn't know it at the time, but she walks in, she gets, it, she gets something out of the, the refrigerator there and, and waits in line. There's five, six, seven people in front of her. And at that point in my life, like, I didn't really have a filter of what I was thinking. I would just do it. So if I thought it, I would do it, you know? So I was like, man, I got to get up and, and talk to this girl. And so I'd been, we had both been at this, this school for two years and I could probably count the amount of times like we've talked to each other, you know, in those two years. So we knew of each other, acquaintances at best, right? And so I get up, I go talk to her. She probably thinks it's the weirdest thing because I'm just standing in line talking to her, you know, just small talk as she's, you know, waiting to, to to purchase whatever she's bought. So I leave that conversation thinking, man, I gotta get to know this girl. You know, like I've got to get to know this girl. And so I kind of MacGyver, Sherlock Holmes it a little bit, get her number through a friend, you know, call her up, so weird. Like just call her randomly out of the blue and I'm driving somewhere and we end up talking for like 30 minutes. And, um, and then the next day we talk again for 30, 45 minutes. And then quickly we start hanging out in friend groups, you know, and we're hanging out together. And, you know, and I knew like pretty quickly that I wanted to pursue this girl. I wanted to date this girl. And so I made my move, you know. And so in February, it was like a couple weeks later, in February we started dating. In November, we were engaged. And let me just go ahead and tell you, like between February and November, I've never worked as hard as something in my life as to, uh, you know, convince her to be my wife, all right? So I had a few months window here to kind of get her to say, yes, you know, she would marry me. And so I didn't have a job at the time. I was playing basketball at this college that I went to and the season ended into February, early March. I got two jobs, all right? Working 60 hours a week because I was broke. And so like, I had to start saving money and I was working as a, a, a server at a restaurant and I was a counselor at a boys and girls home. And so I was just working a ton, trying to prove to her I could work hard and, and provide. And, and so I asked her to marry me in November from, you know, so a couple months there and we were married by April. So like I moved pretty fast on this. Wedding day comes and probably a lot like your wedding day, if you've experienced this before um, in your life is, is pretty vivid imagery of that day. Like you, it's your thoughts and your thoughts of alone right, of how that day went down. And so 
I remember staying up all night talking to a couple of my groomsmen. And, you know, I was nervous as I'll get out, I'm sure. But we just stayed up all night talking. And then ended up going to the, the, the place where we were going to get married. And, you know, events took place. And here I am about to walk out with, with my groomsmen and, and Trent. And Trent's officiating our wedding. And I remember walking out, standing there. Bridesmaid walks down, right? Next bridesmaid walks down. And then that's done, and then silence. Music starts again, doors open, and there's grace. And Trent, you know, can't get away from him. And so time seems to stand still at that moment. You've experienced that too. Here she comes walking towards me. But like your marriage and mine, myself, it's not been all time standstill moments, has it? Like in our tenure of marriage, Grace and I, we've had our fair share of fights and hardships. We've had two children, both blessings, awesome blessings and hard, right? All at the same time. We've had a couple miscarriages, which were incredibly hard times in our marriage. Our calendars are six times as busy as they were when we first got married. Like our date nights went from once a week to like just attempting once a month, just doing our best to get it on the calendar. Instead of spending money on random outings together, like we spend it on doctor's visits, babysitters, clothes, so much clothes, man. Like so much. Cora is growing all the time, every month. She needs a new pair of shoes and this and that. And so we're budgeting our money differently. We've had to learn to balance together the tension of money and sex and communication and miscommunication and in-laws and holiday seasons, right? We're learning that, that, our, that our children, as awesome as they are and just, you know, as cute and cuddly as they are, that honestly, sometimes they're turds. And so like, we learn that together. And we've learned marriage isn't all just sun stand still moments, just like you've learned that. And just like you have learned and just like you have experienced. And so why isn't marriage all Skittles and rainbows and bacon? <laughs> Love bacon. So what happened? Sin happened, right? Sin. I don't have to convince you that sin exists, that marriages fail, we misuse sex, that we don't operate and lean into how God has designed us to live, that divorce is a reality in, in many of our lives, that there's nothing bigger then this issue that brings conflicted parents and guilt and shame stricken teenagers to my office for counseling, then this issue. But if there's one thing, like one truth that I could give you to, to sink deep in your mind and deep in your heart this morning, um, and hopefully it'll springboard our conversation on marriage for the next few weeks and point us in the right direction. So whether you've been married for, again, three months, three years, 33 years, whether you've had bad experiences with marriages in the past or your marriage is currently at a crisis even now or you find yourself single at this point in your life or whether you're a teenager in the room right now or trying your best as a parent to even parent a teenager to set them up to succeed and flourish it's this and if we get this right like I think if we begin to think this this way then we can begin to view and pursue marriage differently and Here's what I want you to see is that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. 
Here's what I mean by this. When we view marriage as a contract, that's when our marriages begin to fail. That's, that's when it starts the slippery slope, right? When it's 50-50 type of stuff. Like I'll meet you halfway, you meet me the other halfway. When we view marriage as a covenant and lean into that truth, that intended purpose given by God for marriage, then our marriages, no matter what we're going through right now, no matter the hardship that we find ourselves in, they still can flourish, I promise you. And notice I didn't use the word succeed there because for our conversation, I think that's just a crap word. Like I think when we talk about wanting our marriages to succeed, um, I want, and I know Trent wants this and, and we, you know, in our small groups, Pastor Brant wants this. We want our marriages here to flourish, not just succeed. I guess that is in a way, but flourishing is, is a total different conversation. And so how do we, how do they flourish? Well, that's really what we're gonna talk about in the next five weeks. But for our purposes today, I wanna talk about the difference between a covenant and a contract. And so Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, I just wanna read this whole passage together this morning because marriage is a picture, although an imperfect one of Christ and the church, so let's read, just, let's read this together and I wanna kind of make some observations about how we can um, pursue marriage under the framework of it being a covenant and a covenant reality in our life. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I love, love that. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. I feel like we've, we've read that already. This mystery is profound. And I, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so a few observations that I, I want to make is on, on this whole passage in this conversation of marriage being a covenant is, is this. And here's the first one. A contract is a business agreement. A covenant, however, is relational. So a contract is a business agreement. A covenant is relational. In a business, you have to abide by what the agreement says right? Like we, you have to, I mean, there's no room for relationship there. I don't have a relationship with AT&T other than the contract that they, they give me, right? Like I do with my wife though, totally different. So in, in this, this idea, I want, I want you to circle a few words in this passage that we just read that lend itself to marriage, the marriage covenant being relational. So I want you to circle the word submit in verse 22, and in 24, I want you to circle the word love in verse 25. And I want you to circle the word respect in verse 33. And so Paul's mention here of wifely submission and husband sacrifice, especially the submission stuff, 
really goes against the grain of culture. It really goes against the grain of, of what is popular today. But one reason it is, it is there in this biblical prescription, remember how God designed it, how God created it um, for us. One of the reasons is because it cuts against the grain of our flesh. Like when I sit here and say the word submission, like it, it makes some of us wiggle, you know, and, and kind of like, you know, cringe a little bit. But like, it is nothing but a profound work, listen, of the Holy Spirit in our lives for wives to submit to their husbands. And I mean, it is nothing but a profound work of the Holy Spirit in my life to lead, you know, with sacrificial leadership. I mean, it takes absolutely everything that is opposite about who we are as humans in our flesh. It's gotta be God working in us to do these things. That's why it's relational, right? Submission, love, respect. And so it is another way we, we see marriages are meant to reflect the gospel. Husbands, right, and wives denying themselves, taking up their crosses daily and following Christ into his way of living. Again, this is God's design for marriage, God's design for husbands, God's design for wives. And in our lives, we live from contract to contract, don't we? Like cell phone plans, internet plans, TV plans, mortgage, car payments, rent. We could, we could just go on and on and on. So a contract is very businesslike when you think about it. Again, I don't have a relationship with AT&T or my bank. Like in the same way that I do with my wife under a covenant relationship. A covenant is relational. And each person in this marriage relationship has roles to fulfill. And so it is not a contract to gain something from the other person. I hope, hope that you see that. It is a covenant between two people, which really leads me to my next point, is a contract is conditional and a covenant is unconditional. And so a contract is often conditional upon whether or not both parties are keeping their side of the agreement, right? Like if I don't pay my bill, AT&T or whatever can break that contract with me. If I don't pay my mortgage, the bank's gonna break that contract with me. Marriage is an unconditional Hope you hear this. Marriage is an unconditional covenant made between two people, a reflection of the unconditional covenant God made between us. There's nothing that we did, nothing that you did, nothing that I did, no condition upon which God saved us. Think about marriage vows for an instance. Like they're unconditional. Like when you got married and when I got married, I didn't say things like, you know, I promise to always love you if you take out the trash, did we? Or I, I promise to always love you if you keep me happy, right? We don't say those things in our marriage vows. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back type stuff. Like, no, like marriage is not a 50-50 contract. It's an all-in covenant where both people go all in 100% both spouses, Again, Christ's relationship to his church, like us, right? God's relationship to us, the bride, his church, me and you, is through a covenant. So husbands love their wives. And if we view marriage through that lens, everything changes. Everything changes. Marriage is not a contract. It is covenantal. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and in health, till death do us part. 
Man, that's covenantal language right there. Three, a contract is a set of rules. A covenant is a standard. So a contract lends itself to being a list of rules you have to follow like, to keep this contract going, right? If you wanna marry me, do this. Like, and then keep doing this, right? Here, here's, here's my list of rules, right? No, a covenant is a standard, a standard in God alone, right? He is, he is the one who created it. It is a, a standard. Like if I don't pay again, my bill, it's gonna be broken. If you don't pay that, it's gonna be broken. However, a covenant is the complete opposite. Look in verse, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. That is not contractual language, is it? You can't break that contract. Christ died for his bride, us, he defeated sin at the cross, rose from the dead. In Acts 2, we see he ascended to the Father, right, his, the Father's right hand. He sits there now. Like, you don't break that contract, do you? When he saves us, you don't break that contract. And let me say it another way. You can't break that covenant. You cannot break that covenant. Verse 32, Paul says, the marriage um, or marriage is a, myst- is a mystery, a mysterious reflection of Christ in the church. Like Christ doesn't break his covenant with us. What makes us think that when Paul calls marriage a reflection of Christ in the church, that that we can be contractual in that. 50-50, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We gotta go just like he did, all in, 100%. Covenantal partnership, covenantal language, a covenantal relationship. And it's a standard only found in God. And so at the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that marriage begins with a song and it, it ends also with a song. Marriage begins and ends with God. And I wanna read you Revelation 21, one through four here. And I love this because when I think about where our faith is going as believers, even in the marriage conversation, like it's not, it's not just a cultural identity that we live with. Like it's not just saying, hey, I'm a Christian. Like our faith has an end goal. Jesus is gonna come back He's gonna completely defeat sin. He's gonna completely defeat death, right? And, and as marriage began with a song, it also ends with a song. And so like when I read this stuff right here, what Christ is gonna do when he returns again, like it gets me so fired up, I wanna break stuff, you know? Like I get so excited. And so I hope that when we read this, you see the urgency of what our faith is, is pointing towards. And in verse one, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I'll skip to verse nine. It says, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife, of the lamb. Marriage begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. 
It begins with God and it ends with God. It began with a song and it begins with a song. All believers in heaven singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Paul calls it a mystery between Christ and the church. It is a covenant, not a contract, and you can't break that. And so if you're a Christian in the room this morning, I just wanna encourage you with that. Like live this way in your marriage. Live in such a way where your marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant relationship. It is not a contract. Like instead of focusing on the give and take, he said, she said, pointing fingers, you know, going 50-50. Go all in, go 100% into your marriages. Go all in because that is a reflection of what Christ did for you, right? And I'm not gonna give you 17 points on how to live as, as your marriage is a covenant this morning. So there's not a lot of application. And that's, again, where we're gonna go the next few weeks. And there's so many resources out there that do this. But go all in, go all in. Your marriage is not a contract, it is a covenant. Christians who are single, I, I wanna address you again, your standard of love is not an earthly relationship. I can't say that enough. That you might choose or you might obtain to have one day. It gets in this covenant relationship between Christ and his bride. That's where your identity has to rest, right? See, like singleness is a season. It is a gift. Just like just like sex is a gift in the right context. Marriage is a gift in the right context. Being a husband is a gift. See, you know, singleness, the season of that is a gift. Use that well. Use your singleness to do big things, hard things for God, for the gospel. Use your singleness to go overseas for a season. I mean, there's so much that you could do in that instead of your identity being in the fact that you're single and it crushing you, use it for the glory of God and go do courageous things for him. Like that's what it means, right? To have your identity not in earthly love, but in the relationship between Christ and his bride. So if you're not a Christian in the room, first step is to believe in Christ. And so the Bible says that if we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin and put our faith in him for what he's done for us, then we can be saved. But here's the deal, like you cannot live this way in this covenantal relationship if Christ first isn't the savior of your life, right? You can't live this way. But when, Christ become, when, when you're saved and Christ becomes your king and he becomes your savior, then it makes you live this way, right? Like the Holy Spirit comes inside you and you want to live this way in this covenant relationship way. But you can't do that, right, if he's not the king of your life. And so we have a room right outside our, our worship center to the left called the Care and Pray Room. If you want to receive Christ today, do that. Go talk to somebody there this morning about what it means to make Christ the Lord of your life. Don't wait to do that. And then talk about how to live this way. The first step is receiving Christ, then going and living like that. And so for all of us, I just kind of want to encourage us here kind of in a, in a family living room setting for a moment, right? Remember, your identity is not in having a good or bad marriage. Like my identity is not in that. Your identity is not in that. Maybe there's several of you in the room who are, whose marriages are on the rocks or you're feeling like your marriages are in crisis mode. Your identity is not in having a good or bad marriage. And here's, here's kind of what I wanna say at the, the risk of sounding 
cliche and cheesy, is that God has a perfect plan for your life and your marriage. And why do I know that? It's because God is the creator of all things, right? He creates everything, gives everything a purpose. We lean into that purpose, right? He created you with a perfect plan for your life. And what God creates is awesome, right? And he is the only one who created you. He gave you a plan. He gave you a perfect plan to unfold in your life. Lean into that. And just like God created and shaped men and women perfectly, he created his plan for you and for your marriage, maybe even for your children's marriage that's beginning to take place even right now, definitely for for your potential teenagers' marriage and your life perfectly. We can't say that enough. And so if you wanna talk to somebody just about bringing this conversation into a, a real way into your home, like a 40-minute sermon isn't gonna do it justice. Again, go to the care and prayer room and, and flesh this out. Like this is, if you wanna, if your marriage is, is struggling, like this is the place you wanna be. This is, this is where you wanna be. Like we want to serve you and walk with you. We don't wanna point fingers and judge and gossip. We want to, again, work as hard as we possibly can to see our marriages here at Foothills Church not just succeed, but flourish. And so again, There's counselors in the care and prayer room. We'd love to talk to you about that today. And remember, your marriage isn't a contract. It's a glorious mystery between Christ and the church. So let's live as if we believe that to be so. Father, we pause before you this morning and we're thankful for your son, Jesus. And we're thankful for the fact that everything about our relationship with him is a reflection of our own marriages. And I pray for the the marriages in this room. And I know that there are a ton of marriages struggling. And I pray that we we have honesty about where we're at in our marriages. I pray that this series is, this series of of talking about family is good. That we move forward equipping ourselves to be the best husbands that we can be, the best wives that we can be for your glory and for our good. Thank you so much for your son Christ who makes this all possible. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.